God with us. Amen. He sure is. And happy Resurrection Sunday. You know that every Sunday is actually Resurrection Sunday. That's why we don't meet on Saturday. Seriously, the early church, they wanted to remember the resurrection of Christ, so they decided to start meeting on Sundays instead of Saturdays. So every Sunday truly is a Resurrection Sunday. And with that in mind, do you guys want to do a good old-fashioned He is risen? Let's do it. He is risen. Yes, and that is true every Sunday, every day of the week, because it is true once and for all. So thank you for coming this morning. Yes, we are looking forward to baptisms. We're looking forward to the newcomers' lunch that we have after service, even if today is your first Sunday. Come and get some free food from us. This might be the only free lunch that you ever come across. So uh, yeah, we, we do invite you to uh, join us, um, and we will now continue to worship through God's Word, we will fulfill what Romans 12.1 says of offering our lives as spiritual sacrifices, as an offering to the Lord by hearing what He has to say to us in His Word, but also by applying it in our lives. So let's pray uh, and pray that God works and that we worship Him in word and truth this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for our church family both the church family that came during first service and the family that we have here during second service, we are one ecclesia, Lord. You know that. That's what you've designed for us. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us one Savior, Jesus Christ, and you as our one Heavenly Father, of which we are all brothers and sisters by faith together, because we share you as our common Father and your Son, Jesus, as our common Savior. Lord, we pray that you work this morning by the Spirit of your Son, Jesus Christ, and also by the word of your son, Jesus Christ, that it will result not just in us hearing your word, but doing it, actually convicting us, Lord, to apply your word in our life so that we can make a great impact for the gospel in the communities in which you have placed us. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who is alive, Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. King Philip of Macedon was the father of Alexander the Great, and he himself was also a conqueror. While he was king, he would go about the known ancient world at that time, and he would conquer city after city. And Alexander the Great really just continued that work of conquest that Philip had begun. In fact, the city of Philippi, the Philippians, that's named after this same King Philip. And King Philip, he decided that he was going to try to conquer one specific city in ancient Greece known as Sparta. And as he was coming down to Sparta, he decided that he would do what he often liked to do in order to intimidate his opponents. He would send messengers to go before him and to go into these invading cities that he was planning to destroy and tell them exactly what he was planning to do to them if they didn't surrender. So King Philip, he sent messengers into Sparta, and he started to talk a big game. He said, if I come into your city, there's not going to be a single building that remains standing. He says, if I come into your city, I'm going to kill every single person that lives in the city of Sparta. He said, if I come into Sparta, I will destroy it so completely that there will be nothing left for anyone to ever remember it by. And the Spartans, unlike the other cities, who just cowered in fear, surrendered, 
did the best they could to prevent the onslaught of what King Philip was about to give them. They sent a messenger in response to King Philip. And this messenger came back to King Philip, and he had a message from the Spartans, and the only word on this message was, if. If. Because that's what it all depends on, right? If I get to your city, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. If I get to your city, I'm going to destroy these people and those people. And the Spartans' response was a simple, if. Because the Spartans were famous for being ruthless warriors who would protect their city even to the death, who would stand up against any foe in order to protect their people. So despite everything that King Philip was planning to do, the Spartans knew that it all depended on that one very small but very powerful word, if. And we know for us today that that word, if, has a huge impact on all parts of life, doesn't it? There's a big difference between the phrase, I love you, and the phrase, I love you if. Or, you can have this, as opposed to, you can have this if. There's a big difference between someone saying that you're going to live, as opposed to someone saying you're going to live if. That word if is a conditional word, and it changes everything. Which is why it might be somewhat troubling for us to find in our verse this morning that Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, when talking about the gospel, when talking about Christianity, when talking about salvation, would begin our verse this morning with the word if. So I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 23, and we're going to see this conditional verse that Paul is going to give us this morning. And remember, as you're turning to Colossians chapter 1 in your app or in your copy of the Bible, that Paul, he's, rec- he's recently pivoted. He's been talking about Christ. He's been writing this hymn to Christ, describing who Christ is and what he's done for us. But remember from last Sunday in verses 21 and 22, he then shifts the spotlight from Christ unto you unto us, and on what we're supposed to do about it. And to understand really the power of this if in verse 23, let's review by looking at verses 21 and 22. Paul says, and you, referring to the Colossians, but also to us, he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, this is the gospel that we're all familiar with. This is the gospel that we understand and that we're comfortable with. It is the true gospel. The idea that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us that we were completely dead in our trespasses. We couldn't do anything on our own in any way to restore our relationship with God, but that Christ himself, by dying in our place, he alone did that work for us. That is the gospel, which is why it makes the beginning of verse 23 perhaps somewhat confusing. That based on everything that Jesus has done for us, Paul would then say, if. 
that Paul is now going to bring a condition into what we assumed was an unconditional gospel. This might be the kind of verse that makes us somewhat nervous, a little uncomfortable. How could it be that this free gift of salvation, this gospel of grace, how can there be an if involved? Well, let's read verse 23, and we're going to find out exactly why Paul would include if in this description of the gospel that we understand as being unconditional. Read with me silently as I read out loud verse 23. Paul says, if, he says this will be true, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, the gospel really has two parts to it. What God has done for you and how you choose to respond. In verses 21 and 22, we put the focus on what God has done for us. Which, let's be clear, the salvation that God has given us is completely and totally in Christ alone. No one else. No work added on our part. No way of us meeting God halfway. God restored for us a relationship to himself completely based not on what you have done, but on what Jesus has done on your behalf. That's why the curtain in the temple, it tears, not when you got saved at 10 years old, but the temple curtain tore when Jesus died. Because that's when reconciliation was made available. That's when the work of a restored relationship was finished by Christ at the cross. But here's the key. Not everyone is going to benefit from that reconciliation. Not every single person is going to die and have a restored relationship with God. If that was true, we would believe in a heresy called universalism. The idea that love wins, that no matter what, God eventually will just let everyone into heaven. That is wrong. That is unbiblical. It is heresy because it denies the fact that even though Jesus has made our reconciliation, he has done the work on the cross, he has called on us to respond to it. And that only those who respond to it, and remember, in order to respond to something, you have to hear about it first, don't you? That's what Romans 10 is about. Only those who respond to the work of reconciliation that Christ did for us, those are the people that will be saved. Those who respond by faith alone, in God's grace alone, in what Christ did alone for us. That's the gospel. What God did for us and how we respond. That will be how we receive our salvation. And in fact, the key word there would be receive. That when you put your trust in Jesus Christ by faith independence in what Christ has done on the cross for you, that that's not when you have made reconciliation. That reconciliation was already made at the cross. By faith is when you receive that reconciliation. The work that Jesus did on the cross to restore a relationship between us and God was finished at the cross, but it is only received by those who have faith. Therefore, the question we all have to ask ourselves is what does it mean to have faith? 
If faith is the way that we receive this reconciliation, then what does it mean to have faith? Because I believe that faith has become this very pseudo-Christian word, this very hyped over-emotional Christian term, this part of Christian lingo, that if you asked a hundred different people what faith was, you might get a hundred different results. You even seen the word faith thrown around in Hollywood movies, and it means the sense of earnestness or, or, or of just uh, blind trust or belief. People may think, well, I had faith when I said this prayer many years ago, or I have faith because, well, I believe that God is real. And in order for us to understand what it actually means to receive God's reconciliation, we must first determine what is genuine faith. And that's going to be what verse 23 is about. That's going to be the meaning of that word, if. Paul is going to define what genuine faith is. Because our big idea for this morning, the big idea of this verse, is that salvation, or you could say reconciliation, only comes by genuine faith. Not faith as you see it, Not your own personal faith, not your own definition of faith, but faith as the Bible defines it. That is the only way to receive and to be saved by the reconciling work of Christ. And in fact, that word if in verse 23, it's actually not conditioning the first half of 21 and 22. It's not conditioning the reconciliation because that's done completely outside of you. The word if is actually conditioning being presented before God as holy and blameless. The idea that someday you're going to die and you're going to stand before your maker who knows everything about you, including the secrets and the sins that not even your spouse knows. And that you will either stand before him condemned or you will stand before him as holy. There is a future salvation. There is that future moment of standing before the Father and being saved and entering into his kingdom that waits all of us if we have received his work by genuine faith. Therefore, for the rest of verse 23, we are going to look at three definitions that Paul gives describing what genuine faith is. And the first point is going to be this. That genuine faith is persistent. This is what Paul has to say at the beginning of verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. In this way, Paul is defining faith not just as one solitary moment in a vacuum that you can then forget about and move on but a single solitary moment that saves you once and for all, but then continues to grow for the rest of your life. Oftentimes we think of salvation because we understand it as once and for all, which it is, we think that means that it can uh, also imply a faith that is once and only, or a faith that is once and previous. That, well, when I was five years old, I had this moment where I realized I needed to put my faith in Christ. I put my faith in Christ that one night, and then I moved on from faith. And I started to put faith in myself. Or I decided to basically live life the way that I want to live it. And I'm trusting in this fact that, well, I had one night of faith, therefore that means I'm saved. Where Paul is saying here that genuine faith, even though you are completely saved in one moment, that a true, genuine, sincere faith is not a faith that is isolated, but a faith that is persistent 
and that continues. In fact, this word that Paul uses for continuing is similar to the word that Jesus uses when referring to uh, the parable of the soils, the sower, the different kinds of seeds that were thrown, and some of them grew up quickly and some of them died. Well, that's talking about a continuous faith or a lack of continuous faith. Specifically, the word that Jesus specifically uses is also found in John chapter 15, verse 4, where Jesus is telling his disciples to abide with him. He's about to physically leave them. He's giving them instructions for what to do once he's gone. And he's telling them to keep doing the thing that they've been doing for the past three years. Continue to spend time with me. Continue to dwell with me. Keep fellowshipping with me by the spirit that Jesus is going to send, the helper, the Holy Spirit, who will then guide us to dwell with Christ, to abide with him in his word and in prayer. We see this also in 2 John verse 9. You see it there. Where he says that everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides, or another way you could put it, is whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Paul is using that same root word that we see in John and that we see in 2 John. We see that same root word appearing in Colossians verse 23 where the focus is not so much on the space, John is focusing on where you should be dwelling in Christ, where in Colossians, the emphasis is on how you should be dwelling, the time, how long you should be remaining in Christ, it being a continual and a permanent thing. You see, even Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, he acknowledged that not everyone who calls out Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not every single person who claims to be a Christian will actually stand before God, as Paul talks about in verse 23, someday, and actually stand before him holy and blameless. Some will call out, Lord, Lord, and they'll stand before the Father, and he'll say, I don't know you. This is talking about what we call the visible, in theological terms, the visible versus the invisible church. The idea that you look around this morning and you see the church. You see the body of believers coming together and we're singing and we're studying God's word together and this is the body of Christ. It's the visible church that we see. But I think most of us are honest enough to recognize that if the rapture was to happen at this very moment, that this probably would not be a completely empty room. That the true church is made up of those people who are truly followers of Jesus Christ, who have truly Uh, accepted and depended on his work of reconciliation by genuine faith. And instead, what we find so often is that people are not living a life of faith. They're living a life that is self-centered in some kind of false dependence on a prayer that they made when they were five years old or on some spontaneous uh, moment of emotion at a retreat or at a conference Or perhaps when they got baptized, they'll look at this moment and they'll say, ah, yes, that's when I had faith and I don't need to have faith anymore because I had faith at that one time and now I can live my life and I know I'll go to heaven when I die. That is not genuine faith. Genuine faith begins as a mustard seed. It begins small. It doesn't take much faith in order to save. You are completely saved at that moment of faithful dependence on Christ's death and resurrection. But remember, what happens to a seed? A seed grows. 
It grows into a tree that produces fruit and a mustard seed, even though being one of the smallest seeds, produced one of the largest trees. If you're looking at your life and you say, well, I had the faith of a mustard seed 20 years ago, and you don't see a tree in your life, you don't see fruit in your life, you have to ask yourself whether or not that was an authentic seed, whether that was authentic faith that you actually had, or whether it was just something temporary, whether it was just being caught up in the moment, you wanted to say the right prayer, you wanted to make someone happy, you were afraid of going to hell, so in a sense of panic, you, you tried to say a few words after the pastor or after a Billy Graham uh, episode, and then you decided to move on. Don't get me wrong, you can be saved at five years old, you can be saved at a Billy Graham evangelist TV program, you can be saved as a result of saying a prayer in response to a call that is given in a sermon, but it is not the words, it is not the coming up front, it's not the raising of a hand that mystically saves you, it is a sincere heart of faith that saves you, and a sincere heart will be one that continues. But let's not be confused, this is a big point. Let's not be confused by any of this to suggest that you can lose your salvation. This is not talking about you once having sincere faith and then somehow forfeiting it. This is about us evaluating whether or not we have truly put our trust in Christ based on whether or not it is persistent. Because the Bible makes clear that you cannot lose your salvation. If you can't gain your salvation, guess what? You can't lose it either. It's a work of Christ. John chapter 10, verse 28 to 29 talks about this. Jesus says that no one can snatch out of the Father's hand, out of Jesus' hand, those whom God loves. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39 also makes it clear that what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing is able to separate us from God's love. Not even your sin can separate you from true salvation that was accepted by sincere faith. Paul goes on and on. The New Testament is clear about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, talks about God sustaining you to the end. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. This is a continual act of grace. It's not just one moment of grace for your salvation and now the rest is on your own, kid. God guards you. God sustains you. God holds you like a mustard seed in his hand. Nothing can take it out. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time similar to what Paul was saying about being presented to the Father as holy and blameless. This is not about you questioning the loss of your salvation. You cannot lose it. It's about questioning the authenticity of your salvation and whether or not your salvation is actually bearing fruit as the Bible promises that it will. And we all have to examine our fruit if we want to examine the seed of faith that we claim to have. Genuine faith is persistent. It will continue. There may be ups and downs. There may be different times of extreme growth and slow growth, but it is a faith that continues on through one's life. Is that true of you today? Let's move on to the second point. The second way that Paul defines genuine faith is by saying that genuine faith 
is reliant. Or you might say that it is dependent. I got to say, that's one of my, maybe my favorite hymn that we sang this morning. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. It's defining what sincere faith is. And it's similar to the words that Paul uses here in verse 23, where he says that if indeed you continue in the faith, and by having a faith, he continues, that is stable, I'm reading from the ESV, that is stable and steadfast. These words that are being used are builder's terms. They are words that are used to describe the building of a structure. The idea of fastening a building onto its foundation. Locking in a structure into the foundation that is under it. And we know that our foundation, the Bible defines, is Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21 talks about this. How we are a building. He's referring to the church. We are all different stones that are built up together in one building, but on one foundation, that cornerstone, which is Christ. Paul says this in other places. Peter says this in other places as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 and 5. This is the Corinthians one. We'll talk about Corinthians. Referring to Christ as the foundation. True faith, sincere faith, is one that is dependent on Christ. That's the mark of true faithfulness, one that roots itself or it locks itself or it makes Christ your foundation. If you're reflecting on your life and you're saying, well, I've been a Christian for 30 years, but it's been more like a Christian for two years, well, then five years of really not being a Christian, then maybe another year of being a Christian, then another four years of not being a Christian, that's a building that's moving back and forth. And a building is always a reflection of its foundation. A foundation that's moving back and forth is going to result in a building that's moving back and forth. An unstable foundation will result in an unstable structure. If you find that your Christianity is constantly you leaving the faith and returning to the faith, it might be because you are depending on yourself and not Christ. You are depending on your ability to say a prayer the right way. Or you are depending on your ability to cry and be emotional in the right way so that everyone claps and everyone gets excited for you and they tell you you're saved. Or you are depending on being baptized, thinking that if you get baptized, and that will mean that all of a sudden you are now a saved person. If that's a way that you came to, so quote-unquote, faith in Christ, you have built your so-called Christian life on a structure that is not Christ. And it's going to be a structure that is like sinking sand that's going to result in a life that is not stable. Which brings us to our third point, which is that genuine faith is not just persistent, it's not just reliant, but it is also consistent. And all of these are very closely connected. Paul says this when he continues by saying, you're stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel when you turn on TV. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel when you're with a certain group of friends. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel when you don't get your way or when things don't work out, that is a reflection of a foundation that is something other than Christ. A genuine faith remains faithful even though the circumstances change, because we all know that even though the circumstances change, Christ does not change. And the hope of the gospel does not change. 
And our status as saved people does not save, does not change. Which means that if we are truly dependent every day, not just at one moment, but every day living a life in Christ that is dependent on him working in us to produce fruit in us, by us depending on his work on the cross by dying to sin, by us depending on his resurrection by living unto new life, that is what faithfulness means. That dependence is going to result in consistency. Husbands and fathers specifically, one of the best ways that you can serve your wives and your children is by being a consistent Christian. Not just a Christian who is one way on Sundays and then different on Monday. Or one way Sunday morning and a different way Sunday afternoon. Families need consistently faithful fathers. Who when things go wrong, when things change, when you get flat tires, when things break, when things don't go right, you remain Christ-like in your behavior because you know that your hope and your trust is in the Lord. That this life is temporary. He's going to take care of you. He's going he's to provide. He's going to make sure that everything works out. You work hard. You be faithful. You continue to serve and lead your family. You keep your hope on the Lord. Your family is watching. And that's a way we specifically as men can show our faithfulness in a way that has an impact on our families and on our children. So we see here three specific examples that Paul gives of genuine faith. A true genuine faith that receives Christ's finished work of reconciliation is a faith that is persistent, a faith that is dependent or reliant, and a faith that is consistent, unchanging, even when problems come up, even when circumstances change. But I'm also going to give you a bonus point. I'm going to give you one final point, which is that genuine faith is also optimistic. And by optimistic, I think the better word here is actually hopeful. True faith is hopeful. It looks to the cross, but it also simultaneously looks to the future. It's three-dimensional faith that by recognizing what Christ has done for us on the cross, depending on what he has done, it also enables us to trust that someday we're going to stand before our Father, someday we're going to have an eternal home, This gospel that Paul says that he himself became a minister of, this hope that's being proclaimed all throughout the world, true Christianity is future-focused. It's a kind of persistence and consistence that is similar to a track runner who's keeping his eye on the finish line. He's not drifting into different lanes. He's not stumbling because he's looking at the runners next to him. He's not focusing on how tired he is. He's keeping his eyes focused on the goal. He's keeping his eyes on the prize. That is what genuine faith is, one that is three-dimensional. It looks to the cross, but it also looks to the future. It depends on Christ's work on the cross, but it also hopes that he who began a good work will continue that good work, and it chooses to live a Christian life that every day is trusting in the gospel. Every day is depending on the cross. Every day is depending on the the resurrection. So as we get ready to close and transition to our time of baptism, I'm going to pray for us. But my hope is that each and every one of you will take a moment to pray and talk to your creator and reflect on your life. Reflect on what it is that you call faith in your heart and examine whether it measures up to the definition of sincere faith that Paul gives in verse 23. Maybe for some of you, 
You realize that you are a true believer. You have been a faithful believer, but right now in this moment, you're not walking with the Lord the way you should be. You're not depending on him the way you should be. You're not obeying him and bearing fruit the way you should be. And today is a rededicating your life to Christ, a confession of sin to him and to your spouse and to your friends and to your coworkers. Or maybe as I get ready to pray, you'll realize, I thought I was saved. I assumed I was saved. My friends told me I was saved, but I realized I was just putting my trust in a baptism or my trust in a prayer or my trust in a feeling, and I never actually put my trust in Christ and that I need to do that today. I, I want you, all of us to consider one of those two possibilities as I pray this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I do pray for the hearts in this room. You know every single one of them. And Lord, thank you so much for the reality that we can't earn our salvation. We can't offer any amount of works to you that will earn for us any amount of forgiveness. Thank you for just doing all of it, Lord. For doing it on the cross. For doing it through your son, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray specifically for the people in the room here this morning. That as each and every one of them reflect on their life, on their heart, on their faith that they will examine it according to the definition that is given by your word of what sincere faith is. And that they will be convicted by your spirit to recognize that they either have a genuine faith that is not being reflected in their patterns of life, or perhaps they realize they've never had a genuine faith. And that today is a day of salvation. Today is a day of repentance. Today is the day where they recognize that they can call out to you and confess that they are a sinner and admit that your son Jesus Christ has died on their behalf and that they want to accept that free gift of salvation through him by faith, not just for this day, but for every day. I pray that that would happen this morning. And I pray all of this in the name of your living son, Jesus Christ. Amen.